everybody. Welcome back to the Jen Hatmaker Book Club Podcast. And if you're listening in to this on our regular For the Love podcast feed, welcome. These are always so fun. These are sneak peeks into the incredible time that we have behind the scenes at the Jen Hatmaker Book Club, which of course, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you how you can join us. It's real, real, real hard. Just go to jenhatmakerbookclub.com and sign up. There you go. It'll take you approximately three minutes and we have the greatest community and we have room for you. So come and join us. We're having a blast. This month we read Cleo McDougall Regrets Nothing by Allison Wynn Scotch, who is our guest today. And I know when I first read Cleo, and you'll see, you'll see as this conversation unfolds, it was just so incredibly timely. It was so on the nose about where we're at culturally right now, where we have been for the last handful of years, exploring the dynamic between women in power and men. It was just all in there. And I'm like, it's time for this. So let me tell you about Allison. Allison had a love of literature planted in her early on by her mom, who was a school teacher. And as she says, those seeds to love books from the time she was a kid, along with her overactive imagination, ultimately fueled her belief that she could be a fiction writer too. And she has written eight books. So she was right. She followed that writing bug, turned it into this incredible career. She became a freelance magazine writer who specialized in celebrity profiles and all those like 10 ways to a better life type articles. And we've read a million of those, right? And then in between all that, she started tucking away little pieces of a novel. And so when she finally began putting that together, now, according to her, it was terrible, although we know it wasn't, but she kept at it. And now she has debuted her eighth work of fiction, which we're talking about today that we're reading this month in book club. And it's called Cleo McDougall Regrets Nothing. Oh, it has sparked so many incredible conversations in our community. So today you can find Allison doing whatever fun outdoorsy things she still can, being a busy mom of two teenagers, which is a full-time job in and of itself. And they live over in LA. She is delightful. You guys, she's so engaging, so easy to talk to. I mean, we could have gone on and on and on and on. You're going to enjoy it. Please just share this conversation with author extraordinaire, Allison Wynn Scotch. I'm rolling. I, I rolled tape. I'm like, Allison and I are just going to start oh. talking. And then that's how this is going to be. We're just going to talk. I want to talk about your book because it's just delightful. And I love so many of the choices that you made. I love your character. I love the way you developed them. I love the themes. Thank you so much. And again, I'm just so thrilled to reach new readers. And I'm just so appreciative that you gave it a platform filled with gratitude. Well, so the thank pleasure you. is mine. I'd love to hear, we have a lot of questions for you, but we are really curious where the idea for the book came from in the first place. We want to know if you had just a thousand things. Did you know somebody like Cleo? Is she patterned after somebody? Where did the regret list come from? Like, it's so specific and unique. I'm just dying to know if your brain just came up with all this. Yes, it was sort of a roundabout interesting experience. I was working on a different book set in the world of musical theater that 
I had written about a hundred pages and I kept rewriting a few times. My agent just finally was like, this is not working, but it was touching on sort of the themes of being a woman in this moment in time and sort of a reckoning that society has had to come to with women who are ambitious or angry or feel disposable. So I knew I wanted to still explore those ideas. And as soon as I set this aside, and I think this is sort of a metaphor for a lot of our baggage or whatever, the idea of exploring it through a different lens immediately came to me. And, you know, it was right around, I was writing it, I can't remember specifically when I started it, but it was around when like the Time's Up movement was happening and the Me Too movement and sort of what you said, it, my brain just worked that way. It just She just came to me. I think it was probably around the midterms when a lot of women were running for office. And I was so appreciative of what you said about the book when you announced it. I didn't want to get into something political because we had been inundated with that. And I'm not here to tell people how they should feel on specific issues, but I felt like setting it in Washington was a very clear way of exploring power because it's it's literally a direct link to power. So that's why I went that way. And then, you know, I really tried to steer clear of issues and sides. Like I never name what side she's on, whatever. And then the regrets thing, that came because this was my eighth book. And I feel like I've written a lot of like, and read, I mean, like you, I'm a big reader. I've read like, you know, your bucket list books, or I've written books like that, or what, whatever you want to do better. And I was trying to just come up with like, an interesting way to reflect back. And I didn't know if it would work. And then I, I went to my agent and she's one of my best friends and I trust her implicitly. And she was like, I've never read something like this. I think that's a great way to reevaluate your past. And I probably throughout all my books, I'm very interested in revisiting your past. It's just like who I am as a person. Like I will Google anyone I've ever met in my life. Like, you know, yeah. so for better or worse. That's just, you know, how it played out. And I toyed around with how many regrets and how to, you know, should they be all very grave, but like how many seriously egregious regrets can somebody have without being a monster? So yeah, so that's how it came out. And then I just started writing and writing and my agent kept reading and being like, these are great. These are great. And lo and behold, it became a book. I'm curious what the reader response has been specifically to the idea of the regret list. Have you heard from readers? Are they doing that? Like what's happened in your community? So it's been interesting. So I'll call into book clubs. I mean, not like small dinner table book clubs. People seem to like it because it does sort of, it comes up like, what's your biggest regret? And it's funny because I've always sort of prided myself on someone like, oh, I don't, I've certainly looked back, but I don't feel like I regret a lot of things because life has fallen into place. And, you know, you have the kids who, that you have, even if, you know, your relationship didn't work out, whatever. But it does come up because I think a lot of people don't really think of frame things in that way for themselves. So I don't know if people are discussing it within your community, but I do think people are considering it. But then there's also sort of the pivot to, I didn't do that and maybe I regret it, but this came out this way, or maybe there's some sort of amends making where, you know, you're reaching out to somebody as Cleo does and course correcting, because if like this past year has taught us anything, like we have an opportunity to be reflective and course correct if we've really done something wrong. So yeah, that's this sort of theme that's rising up in our book club community, which is 
exactly kind of what you just said, because it's kind of flip sides of a coin. You know, you can get potentially mired and stuck in the idea of regret. That could be paralyzing, but we like it the way you've sort of packaged it with Cleo, which includes this opportunity for amends. And, you know, one thing I'm, I was just thinking as I was reading it was that for a lot of us, we don't get that opportunity because we won't even name it. We won't name regret. We have shame around them. We're embarrassed. We have guilt. And so, I mean, even just kind of like the onward, you know, onward only it's relatable. It's relatable. And so, well, I think that's so interesting and something that I actually haven't even articulated, but what you said is that we don't even want to give a name to it because then it's an admission that we were really at fault. And I think that's really, again, I haven't even specified that, but I think that's really what I was writing. I mean, Cleo just avoided it. Like, it was just like, I did some egregious things. Oh, well. And I do think a lot of us live our lives that way. And, you know, some of it is just like, maybe we've been raised that it's stronger to not admit guilt or wrongdoing. Whereas, I mean, you're a parent and I'm a parent. I am trying to teach the approach of like, doing something wrong isn't the weakness. Refusing to uh, apologize or make it right is probably the bigger weakness. I mean, I love how you said that. I think that's right. Ignoring it is maybe okay in the short term, but it's not probably the root, the thing that leads to growth in the long term. And that's with all my characters, I just like exploring people who have room for growth. So yeah, yeah, you do that so well. And well, thank I, you. I love what that opens up for your readers. Because in some way, you know, the books that we love always carry within them the potential to be a bit of a mirror that we are able, I mean, no matter how alike or different we are from like Cleo, still her story does allow us to self-reflect just a little bit. It's, I love reading this right now because, whoa, what a time to be talking about women in politics. Of course, obviously with Kamala, our first woman, you know, at that stage, at that level ever in history. It's just huge. I wonder if you can kind of, from your perspective as her creator, walk through what you see as some of the characteristics that set Cleo apart and why it's so intriguing to see this, this powerful woman as you've given her tools. I love it. I am here for this powerful woman. I love the way that you wrote her. I love her story. Well, thank you. You know, I think what's interesting about Cleo, and this is one thing, a dialogue that I've had with a lot of readers, I'm guessing it's come up with you guys, is that Leo, uh, Cleo, Leo, is unapologetically ambitious. And it makes her not particularly at the beginning necessarily likable. And then as a reader, we have to step back and say, wait, we're at this moment where we know that likability should not be what we really demand from people who want to get something done, but we still want her to be likable. And so where is that judgment coming from? And I mean, you know, it's for me too, with books that I read or TV shows that I watch. I mean, I think what makes Cleo interesting is that she is unapologetically ambitious. And I think a lot of us, I mean, you have built this empire. I am very proud of my career. And a lot of us still don't fully own that. Like, I get very embarrassed when people are like, oh, wow, she's written eight books. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's just a job. It's not a 
really anything particularly. And, and I, I do believe that, but people are like, what? That's really impressive. But I think so many of us have this tendency to be like, oh, it's not a big deal or don't really ask for what we want. Like, include a lot of exclamation marks in our emails like that's just one very specific like I was corresponding with some business people and I was like sorry exclamation mark I'm not sorry I need to know the answer to something she doesn't really do that so I think people might not necessarily like that but there is something there that is like wow like how did that happen I mean I'm not I don't know if you uh, agree but I just I feel like that is what makes her interesting. At the beginning with Cleo, we're like, I don't know, man. Like, I just don't know. Are we going to like her? You know? And I just like that we had to sit with that a little bit and really dig under it and go, why? Like, why? These are not qualities that I would critique in a man. That's right. And I mean, to be fair, she makes some choices which are not great in her life. But a lot of us have. I think I have. <laughs> you know. So I love that. I mean, I do think you have to sit with it in the same way that I think a lot of us, particularly sort of white women, have had to sit with some of our own notions over these past few years and done some real growth about what we bring to the table, what we might have over other people. You know, just I like to think that these past few years, for me, for society at large, has provided room for growth. And that's what probably even unknowingly, because I wrote this two years ago that I was looking for when I wrote Cleo, you know, an opportunity for me to explore that as a writer, an opportunity for readers to explore that and sit with a little bit of discomfort and wonder where that comes from and how you can cast that aside. Absolutely. I think that you did that with a really masterful hand. And I mean, that is the effect it had on me was I'd catch myself in a bit of judgment and have to kind of sit down in the pocket of that and, you know, really realize that there isn't a one of us who doesn't have things that we can look back on and say, I, I wish I'd have had that back or I wish I would have done that better or I had the possibility to make amends. What I like about the way that we experience Cleo is that you kind of, well, this is maybe just my experience. I don't want to speak for all women for sure, but you gave her to us in a bit of reverse. And what I mean by that is, to go to our earlier point, a lot of women struggle to embrace our ambition, our accomplishments, like you and I were talking about a second ago. We shrug those off and we kind of aw shucks it. And we're weird. We're weird about that. And then usually growth points for women like us are getting to a point where we're just a little bit sturdier inside of ambition, sturdier inside of success, if you will, whatever that looks like to each of us. But with Cleo, you gave us opposite. We meet her already sturdy, confident, unapologetic. And then you begin to show us her soft underbelly. Yes. Like she goes the opposite direction where at first we think maybe she's not relatable. Maybe she doesn't bleed like the rest of us. But then bit by bit, you show us that she does. And so I like the reversal because it I can feel where it rubs against kind of the way that the natural progression for, I think, a lot of women. What are your readers say about Cleo? I'm curious what the, what the general response has been up to her. So I love that you say that. And it's funny that you say that because 
I will say probably through all of my books, it's it's sort of a joke. As I said, my agent is my first reader and she's really, I feel weird. This gets back to the apologizing, like even calling her like my agent, like she's a good friend of mine, whatever. Anyway, but it's a joke because all my initial drafts, like my main characters are like way too bitchy to even like appeal. So I always have to dial it back because I am interested in exploring, you know, like, I'm interested in digging under that veneer. So I would say that my sense is, is that readers are probably responding like you and hopefully your book club members where there, there is some initial like, am I going to be able to root for her by the end? And listen, at the end of the day, it's, you're asking people to embark on like a 350 page journey with you. And so you do need to give them somebody to root for, even if they don't like her, which is why through the drafts, I always have to sort of make them a little, <laughs> a little more appealing. <laughs> That's so interesting. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I just have like a natural, I don't know. I mean, I like writing complicated women. And so maybe I make them too complicated initially. Yeah. But what's funny is I do get emails or you know, tweets, whatever. A lot of people really love her, even in her unlikability. And not everybody does. I, I don't really read reviews after like the first few weeks. So I'm sure there are people who do not, but that's like of no service to me to read people say mean things. So, but I do think there is a notion with women, you know, a lot of us are working moms or even if they're not moms, they're, they're working women who are exhausted from those emails with triple exclamation marks and watching men who are not as talented as them ask for what they want. And if they had asked for it, maybe they would have gotten it. Like a lot of women in the workforce are are feeling exhausted. So I feel like a lot of women come to love her, sort of her unapologetic nature. And, you know, she doesn't rub everybody the right way. And that's sort of the nature as you know, as a public figure, like, sure, that's just how it, how it goes. It is. It is. But even that is an important tension to keep in the book because, you know, it's possible. It's more than possible. It happens all the time where women are written flat, you know, pretty flat, entirely likable or just without a whole lot of dimension. And so those are sometimes easier. They go down. Yeah. They go down easy. Oh, sure. You may just work a little. And I like that. I appreciate that. Thank you. Great stories are powerful, right? That's why I love this podcast. We get to hear people from all walks of life talking about their obstacles and their wins. And you know another place we get to do that? the Jen Hatmaker Book Club. And I want you to join today because if you love this podcast, you're going to love the book club. Here's the deal. Each month, we'll dive into a fantastic book and we read all kinds of stuff, fiction, memoirs, self-help, all of it. Every single book is something I have read and loved. And I just know you will too. After you sign up, every month, I'll send you a box with the book and other fun treats. Plus, your membership comes with a whole slew of perks. You get resources like reading plans, weekly summaries, discussion questions. Plus, you get tons of exclusive community stuff. You get access to our private Facebook group where you can connect with me and all your fellow members. 
And there's a monthly Facebook Live chat session with me, and sometimes some surprise guests. Sometimes I pop into the Zoom meetings of our local chapters, which is always delightful. Plus, we do some cool stuff with the book's author. They curate these awesome Spotify playlists just for us. Plus, I record a podcast with the author or another special guest, and we talk about the book. It is an incredible way to cap it all off. And you know what makes a book club great? The people. This community is the kindest, most supportive group you can possibly imagine. They have definitely been saving my life in 2020. Join us. So sign up today at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. We are here waiting to welcome you into the sisterhood with open arms. So join us at jenhatmakerbookclub.com today. Okay, back to our show. Another thing that I really appreciate that you included, and this has been a real talking point in our community, in our book club community, is the storyline you included about Alexander. And I'd like to hear more from you as the author about the way Cleo confronts what ultimately she's able to name, which is an abuse of power. It's a power differential. Right. But how strangely, like on the nose, you got it because it, it also is wrapped up in shame. It's just, yes. this is not surprisingly a common storyline among women. You know, yes. maybe change out a few details and this is familiar. And so I'd like to ha- have your thoughts on it, including also the hashtags that you, you know, pulling a Cleo and not all men, which are just ever, 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 ever relevant right this second. Yes. Thank you. So it's interesting. So when I, Explored that, I wanted it to be nuanced. Like, as I said, I started writing it during probably when the whole fallout from like Weinstein was coming up and Matt Lauer and men were getting fired and called out left and right, rightly so. But I didn't want to write something as overt as that because that to me was obvious. And I think a woman like Cleo in those situations, which is not to say all women, certainly there's complicated feelings in those situations, but I think she would have known how to behave. But I think a lot of us have been in situations where it was a little bit less clear. Like you weren't in the moment quite sure what was happening. And so maybe you went along with it because it was surprising or the power differential. So that's how I approached it. And it's been interesting because I've talked to some women of sort of an older generation, some of whom don't see him as at fault as some younger women do. And I do think there is certainly like when the whole Me Too thing was going on, there was some generational like, oh, just whatever, suck it up. And then the young, like Gen Z, like, you know, what whatever, hell? he belongs. Yeah, like let's castrate him, whatever. So I tried to approach it from trying to explore why it was wrong. Because she, not even, uh, why, I'm sorry, Nobel's was wrong. Because to me, it was clearly an abuse of power. You know, and I think at the time, again, I wrote it a while ago, I was probably thinking about some of the women who felt compelled to go along with Harvey Weinstein. And, and it wasn't rape, but it was still wrong with what he did. So I thought by exploring it from sort of a, middle ground, it made readers think harder about it and what the position that women are in. You know, I 
when I first got out of college, I was temping at a big investment bank. And a lot of like the sort of, I was 22, like the late 30s men would like sort of hit on me. And at the time I was like, oh, I guess that's flattering. I don't know, whatever. And now I'm like, that's disgusting. Like they were VPs and I was answering their phones. So, Mm. you know, that's, it's like reflective where we've all had to step back and these past few years sort of without going into things like I've come to the amazing realization that I was in like an emotionally abusive relationship for a couple of years in my twenties, things that at the time I was just like, well, this just is what it is. So, and I think that coming to those conclusions as Cleo did is very powerful. Like it's sort of an ownership thing and she clearly goes out and owns it. And it's hard. Like it was hard for me to, understand that about this boyfriend who I thought I loved but then I and I'm like oh I'm such an independent person how did I allow myself to do that and you just it happens so you know I don't know if what readers are saying but that's sort of I I just I wanted to be nuanced about it because if it's overt then there's not much to think about you're right yeah no that's been that's our exact response to that storyline particularly and And then just to hear women say, ah, here's what that looked like in my life and why it was confusing and how women tend to carry complicity for that sort of abuse of power way past the moment that they should. And so I just kind of appreciate that, be it through fiction or through truth telling and sharing our stories that this conversation keeps finding its way to the center because yeah. you know, that sort of abuse has gone on forever for absolute ever, and it will continue until it's checked. That's right. And I just, to answer your question about the hashtags, I did that because I felt like, I mean, oh my gosh, on Twitter, everybody's so quick to jump on a bandwagon without really understanding the complexity behind things. And some of it is good, like the empowerment, me too, time's up, whatever. But some of it is just like knee jerk. I don't know. I just feel like those hashtags can sometimes be thoughtless. Absolutely. <laughs> like it's just group think. And sometimes they're, they also give people a voice. So yeah, again, I don't know if that answers the question. You just that. kind of let us sit in that. You didn't necessarily yeah. make our choice for us, but we had to kind of, I did. I evaluated how easy it is for me to get quickly swept up. Yes. And I should say, I included the non-all men, both a little tongue-in-cheek, but also because, as I said 10 minutes ago, a lot of men are great guys. So I I certainly didn't want to, like, you know, dump on all men. But as we see in today's social media, like, it just becomes like a parody of what's going on because it becomes so... Absurd. Sorry, I cut you off. I didn't no, no, I not at all. I'd love to hear you talk about your own work. That's what you're doing here. Speaking <laughs> of, you. I'm just, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about your writing process. Does Cleo follow sort of a writing process that is, is pretty ubiquitous to you at this point? Is this the way you write novels or is this one any different? So no, I usually just start with an idea and usually a main character and I just go. I don't know. I know you've obviously had other authors on and I think it's sort of a mixed bag. Some people outline, some people, I find that I just need to build on the momentum of what I'm writing. And if I stop to like outline or peg myself into what I think needs to be an ending, 
it just, it's detrimental to my storytelling. So I just, when I'm working, I just set a word goal, a word count goal for the day and I just go and I will go back and fix some stuff, but I mostly am just trying to get to the end. And then the revision process, I usually probably go through five revisions, something like that. So that's really when, I mean, the first, let's say, the second and third draft are really like the meaty overhauls and then it's fine tuning. But yeah, I just like to sort of follow where the characters are going. And I didn't, I had an idea of how this was going to end, but how I got there, I wouldn't have been able to outline because I don't know what she's going to do next. So that's just how it goes. And as I said, like I, I make sure that it's sort of on track with my agent because sometimes when you're in a writing bubble, it's hard to, be sure what's working. Oh, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially inside yeah. fiction characters who kind of weirdly end up taking on a life of their own. That's it's right. So strange. I'm fascinated by the fiction writing process. Yeah. So the only time I've ever outlined was for my third book where I had to know the ending. It was the ending determined the rest of the book. And I found it really difficult to write. I think that is so fascinating. Were there any like when you're in that second and third revision, what was like one or two like really big changes you made that like they didn't make it, you changed it, but had you like veered a hard rider left somewhere in a revision where you're like, this is not working. I'm going to renovate this storyline or this whole entire character. Yeah. That's a great question. I feel like what's interesting with Cleo is the only other time I've had this experience was my second book, which sort of launched the trajectory of my career. I felt very confident in writing it sort of from start to finish. I will say, I think there's a culminating scene that's sort of funny and I, I won't spoil it for people who haven't yet finished it. It sort of changes how you feel about her because she's shown very flawed and that I don't think was in the earlier drafts. And it's such like a, vivid moment that's funny and touching. And I also, I do think there was, I made her sister a more important part of the book. And actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I amplified Lucas, her son. I gave him a much bigger part. But this was a book that I just trusted myself. I wrote it very quickly from start to finish of the first draft. I think it was like two and a half, three months. And I've, again, I've only had that experience with my second book where, again, I just knew what I wanted to say. But that is unusual. My book before this, which was a very complicated, half the book was told backwards, half the book was told forwards, took me many, many drafts, many, many deletions of like the first 50 to 75 pages. I think sometimes, and again, I know you speak with other authors and they may say the same thing. When you really understand your character, as I did with Cleo, it just makes it easier. So... I could listen to you talk about your writing process for 100 years. <laughs> Thank you. It's so interesting to me. Just keep doing it. It's funny. A lot of my friends are writers, so it's sort of mundane to us. So I feel like I'm saying boring things. That's why I'm like, so anyway. No, it's not <laughs> <But> boring. I, <laughs> it's so interesting because, you know, I write nonfiction. And so it's just a right. completely different beast. It's a totally so different how beast. many do you revise? Like, how does that, do you have to revise things? How does yes, that work? Yes, it's terrible. Yeah. It's terrible too, because when you're writing nonfiction, which is so often like it's born out of your personal experience, like you're telling your own stories that are real or real enough. 
they're embellished as my kids always say, but then yeah, the revisions are like, Oh, every single word of this is precious, which of course it isn't. Right. It's never right. all precious. Never. It's personal. And so, yeah, the, the revisions uh, hurt my feelings. I do do think in like nonfiction essays, which I write from time to time, I understand that because it's like your story. And so you want to sort of, you have ownership over every single word for this stuff. I mean, particularly like eight books in very little is precious to me. I'm like, I just want to be in service to whatever the reader's it's going to make a compelling book. But again, and that, that sort of comes with, like, as we were talking about earlier, being more confident in my career. Like, I'm just not, like, I understand what works. I understand what doesn't. Fine, let's get there. You know, I'm a big girl. Absolutely. And you do, it is true. I have never, ever, ever, not one time, had a book suffer because of editing. That's right. <laughs> it only gets better. Like, <laughs> That's always the right move. That is actually correct. I always say that I know how to make a book good, but I need an editor to come in and help me make it be great because I might get wrapped up in things that I think are brilliant, but to an objective person, they're less so. So that's just my own, like when people say, what's your best advice for a new writer? I always just say like, you got to take your ego out of it because if your ego is tied to something, you have already lost sight of like what's working for somebody who is not you. You're (laughs) absolutely right. And you might as well go ahead and practice laying down that ego during the writing and editing process, because if you don't, you will have absolutely no chops for sometimes the criticism that comes once that book is on a shelf. So look, you need to develop a thick skin for aspiring writers. That is correct. It's no secret that 2020 won't win any prizes in my book, but there's something I absolutely love that came from last year. I released my first ever merchandise line, and it was all sort of in honor of my book, Fierce, Free, and Full of Fire, which came out last April. Listen, it's small but mighty, but I bet you've seen some of it. We started with fierce hats and face masks, of course, and coffee mugs, Then we moved to hats, mugs, and shirts for the word free, specifically, super on the nose. And there's one really special item for me in the Gin Hatmaker Merge Collection. We have elephant coasters that say this, there is no community like a community of women. So here's the thing about elephants. You've heard me say this. Out in the wild, when a female elephant is vulnerable, she's either giving birth or she is injured her fellow female elephants, her sisters, get in formation and surround her and protect her. Talk about the definition of fierce. I'll tell you that I lived that elephant story over and over and over again in this last year, thanks to my family, my friends, all of you. This is what we do, girls. When our sisters are vulnerable, when they are giving birth to new life or new ideas or new spaces, when they need their people to surround them so they can heal or recover, we get information. We close ranks and literally have each other's backs. This is how we show each other that we are fierce, free, and full of fire. So right now, you can find the elephant coasters and all the other fierce and free items at jenhatmaker.com slash shop. And hey, 
look alive, you can save 20% off the entire site with the code for the love. Yay. These are just beautiful words that held me last year. And I hope they hold you too. So one more time, that's jenhatmaker.com slash shop to save 20% today. Use the code for the love. All right, back to our show guys. Okay, I've got a couple of questions for you from some of our members. We had a million questions, and so I waded through a couple. Here was one. This question is from Julia Peasley. She said, Allison, I'd love to know about the connection to Seattle. What type of research went into writing the setting because you write it as someone who loves and misses Seattle? Yeah, so I grew up there. I moved there. I was born in Virginia. And we moved there in fifth grade. So I used to have like a little Southern accent and I got to Seattle and I was like a fish out of water. But I grew up there. I love it. Uh, My parents no longer live there. They live in Manhattan. So I don't get back there often. But I knew I wanted to, you know, make Cleo live somewhere else. And it's sort of the most familiarity I have other than like a Los Angeles, which is not, I'm not interested in exploring. Like actually my last book was set here. It was with a Hollywood actress, but So I do. I look back with a lot of fondness. I had a great childhood there. It's like a great place to grow up. But it's changed a lot from when I grew up. So I was constantly like, is this still accurate? And my editing team is up there. So I was like, you guys will just have to let me know if this is not factually correct now that I'm in my 40s. Yeah. So yeah. So that is why. Okay. Here's another question. I know why she asked this because you captured so much of the nuance and even the minutiae of politics in DC. So Karen White said, did you ever want to be a politician when you were younger? Simply by the way you wrote up of it. And additionally, could you ever see yourself entering politics in the future? What a good question. So no, I never wanted to be a politician. Actually, when I was younger, the first thing I did want to be was a judge, which is sort of interesting because it probably gets to like, I mean, forget like that I didn't even anticipate like I would have to go to law school and work my way up to it. I just probably liked being in a position of power and like deciding what was right and wrong, much like being a parent of a teen right now, right? So no, I never wanted to go into politics and I do not it's funny. I just said to my husband the other day, like, I feel like I could do a much better job than half the politicians right now, but I would never run for office. I do not like bureaucracy and I do not like diplomacy. Like, I feel like I know, I mean, I do, I do, but like, I'm not there to like play, like some of these things are so obviously right and wrong. Like I'm not there to like barter with you about like COVID relief. Like let's help people out. (laughs) Like that's, So, as I said, I chose D.C., and I do have friends who work in politics, so I was able to speak to them to make sure that things were mostly accurate. But I just, I felt like it was so emblematic. It was just a little more, like, on the nose than, like, choosing a CEO, like, or something. So it was just symbolic. That's why I did it. The timing could not have been better. When you wrote it, when you released it, right here in this moment of t- in time, it's so salient. Okay, Last question from one of our community members and a bunch of people asked this. So she just gets the, she just gets the cred from Megan Curtis. She said, obviously, will there be more Cleo stories coming because we want to see her take on a presidential debate? Oh, thank you. So 
I have been asked a lot about writing a sequel and I've never written a sequel because like, I'm sure you feel this way about your stuff. Like when I'm done, I'm like, Ugh, like I, <laughs> I never want to see this again. But I do feel like there's a lot of stuff to mine there. You know, whether she runs for office, whether we see her in the White House, whether we see her like- In love. Some people have suggested, yeah. Well, and some people have suggested picking it up like eight years later when she's done. And Lucas, like she can't focus on him. Like oh, she has to really. So I, I, I am thinking about it. I think some of that sort of depends on, you know, I didn't want to dive right into it. I wanted to sort of see what happened with the election, what people's political, not political, again, I'm hesitant to even say that, but what our appetite was for sort of this type of thing. So, but it, it is in my mind and it's, she's such a fabulous character yeah. that I would, you know, would be happy to revisit her in some way. So we'll That's see. exciting to hear because you, you left her kind of on the precipice of a lot of mm -hmm. possibility. Like there's yeah. just so much she could do next in, a, That's in every right. category, love, yeah. parenting, politics. Yeah. You know, and, and then just there's a whole yeah. And with Gabby, like yeah. what's going to happen oh, with yeah, her Gabby, exactly. Lucas's dad. Again, that's not really a spoiler. So there's a lot that I feel like, I mean, there's a whole nother book to that's be so written. True. So Lucas and his dad, what could that be? I yeah. No. Yeah. Or her sister, you know. Yeah. Um, All right. You just keep thinking on that. Yeah. <laughs> We're ready to read the next one. If you're ready to write it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Thank okay. You. Two more questions. And then. We'll just wrap it up because you have a life. Jen, like I'm trapped in my house. Like I, <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that I said to my kids is do not interrupt me. Do not text me. Do not call me for a lunch order. You know, that's exactly what I do. And like I told you, I come out here to my outside office, but even out here, they find me. I have to put a note on the door that says, don't knock. Don't put your face. Just I'll get to you in an hour. Like, Call 911, I guess. I don't know. Correct. I mean, that's right. Okay. <laughs> Call the so police. I'd yeah. love to know this. Obviously, you, you said this earlier. Writers are always also readers. We'd love to know, what have you read lately that you love? Or you're reading it right now? Or just a couple of your recommendations that you're like, this is a readable book. Read it. So I just finished listening to The Cold Millions by Jess Walter. I don't know if you read Beautiful Ruins. It was a, another oh, book yes, that he wrote. Oh, yes, I did. Oh, yeah. Okay, I love that book. So I just listened to, he just has a new book out. I don't know him. This is not like a plug of a friend of mine. It's historical fiction. And I thought it was really well done. If that's sort of your, it's set in like Spokane in 1909. I just thought it was interesting. Like I was a fan of Deadwood. And so it's sort of set in that same time. So I like that. I just read two thrillers that I really liked. The Girl from Widow Hills by Megan Miranda and Invisible Girl, I think, by Lisa Jewell. And then I think my favorite book, I'm sure a lot of you guys have read this, of the year was The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. That's coming up in book club. Oh, my good. Your group is in for such a treat. I just loved it. Like I read it probably at the start of quarantine, but it's just stuck with me. So I'm so glad that you guys are reading it. It was just really just a wonderful exploration of race and society and identity. Oh, it She's was great. special. I interviewed her on the For the Love podcast, like my main podcast. And 
She's a fascinating. Oh, I think person. I saw that. Yeah. yeah, she's really a true talent. Yes, I mean that's how I felt. I was sort of like, I don't know, do I want to? I, I, as I said, I think I read it like right at start of quarantine, where I sort of maybe didn't want something heavy, and I was hesitant. But it just, I just thought it, it wasn't heavy. It was, I could not yeah. stop reading yeah. it. It, yeah. it was fantastic. Oh, great suggestions. Okay, last question. We just want to know what we're just nosy. Like, what are you working on right now? What are you doing? What's next? So I am actually, I, I haven't started my next book because as I said, I might want to do Clio, but I sort of wanted to see like how things shake out. But I am working on an adaptation. We're going to be able to announce it fairly soon. Of My last book with an actress I'm really excited about. And yeah, I can, I'll tell you offline, but we're, I think we're like finalizing details on that. It's things have been so slow with COVID. So I'm going to work on that for the next few months, I think. That's so exciting. Then we'll sort of see. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about that. It was probably the book I'm most proud of just because it was so difficult to write. Not everybody loved it. That's fine. But just as a, from a craft perspective, I was super proud of it. It's called Between Me and You. And as I said, it's about an actress and a screenwriter and sort of set over 20 years of their marriage from his perspective telling it backwards and her perspective telling it forwards. And so... You sort of meet them when they've broken up and then you see it's like a kaleidoscope of Ooh, all the ups and downs of what, they, but anyway, we're, we're adapting that and I'm excited about it. And you know, you have your hand in many pots and I feel like it's fun to write different things or try different things. Like after every book, I'm always like, well, that might be it. <laughs> I think I'm done. <laughs> Same. I could not agree more. Like using your creativity in a new way is like such a fun rush. I just told my community that I contracted to write a cookbook way outside of my normal genre. I mean, what in the world? And I'm, so I'm writing it right now as we speak. I'm having the most fun, the most amount of fun that I go into my kitchen and cook and that counts as my job. I'm just flexing a different muscle that I haven't. And I, it's just so fun creatively to do it. Yeah, well, listen, that's how I feel. Allison, we are big fans of you. and Thank you. This was truly such a thrill for me. No, it's ours. And we, we oh, thank so you. are enjoying reading Cleo's story and... It's teaching us, it's stretching us, it's pushing us, Thank you. it's challenging us. And so to me, that's what all the best books do. Oh, thank you. Well, listen, and I was going to say, if you guys, if your community has other questions, I'm happy if you guys email me, I'll, I'll write out answers. Oh, that's awesome. And by the way, I should say, I saw, I read over quarantine. I saw you, pick, did you pick Ghosted for yeah. one of your books? Yeah, we just read it. I love that time. book too. Yeah, I, re- I read that one too. It was the, one of my favorites as well. Sorry, I was just thinking about No, other I'm authors. glad you, you like that too because it was kind of a long read, not a quick read, but I didn't see it all coming. I didn't see the Oh twist. my God. Yeah. That twist? Yeah. I was like enjoying it. And then the twist came and I was like, Oh, okay. oh, me too. Like, I'm in. Yeah. Me too. Yeah, yeah. I closed it and I texted like my team that works with me on book club. And I'm like, guys, just, I'm going to put it, I'm going to drop a book into our, into our world to consider for book club. Cause I, that just got me anyways. I agree. Okay. I thought it was delightful. Thank you, Jen. Thank you readers. Absolutely. If you want me to answer more, you know where to reach me. So. Thanks Allison. Okay. Thank you. Bye.